Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, I have Jeff Kahn. He's the co-founder and CEO of Rise Science. Uh, They have an app that delivers real-world benefits of better sleep as a technology-enabled sleep behavior modification platform. So, Jeff, thanks for coming. Yeah, it's really uh, definitely the pleasure is mine to to, to be here and get to share any of the lessons I've learned along the way. So, it's you know, why why do you care about sleep if it's not obvious? But why why in particular do you care about it so much that you created a company? Well, it's more than that. I've spent the last 10 years of my life uh, sort of spending pretty much all of my waking hours dedicated to it. And, you know, I'd say the the simple reason I care about it, then I can give you the story of how I got here. But the simple reason I care about it now is it's the most underappreciated thing that we can do to feel better. And it'll, in my opinion, is the biggest problem that we need to face as a society over the next decade. So that's why I care about it now. But I got into it just because, you know, in, in undergrad and grad school as an engineer, I was just exhausted. And and started to, to spend time researching sleep science, hoping to find what it is that I need to do so that I feel better and less shitty. And um, that was sort of what started how you feel and your energy levels. It's actually related to everything that we can measure about human functioning. And, you know, if there's one lever that could affect uh, all of, all, you know, your, your experience uh, on the planet, sleep would be the biggest lever that you have in your control. And so that sort of was a huge shift for me into thinking, wow, this is something that 
so many folks just don't even know where to start, don't know how to approach. And if I could help bring some science into that and, you know, help people bring this into their life on a daily basis, that could be a really big impact. So that's what's motivated me the last 10 years. Well, I can tell you from personal experience, having had sleep problems for years and years and years. I mean, one big thing I noticed, which may not be obvious, is when I don't sleep well, I'm irritable and I'm short. And my conversations with my wife lead to more arguments. I may yell at my kids more. I really try not to. You know, I go to a store and get a Starbucks. I may be rude to the barista. Again, I try not to do any of these things. But when you don't feel well and you haven't slept well, it's hard. So one thing I realized is like my bad sleep or good sleep affects everyone around me. So it's my responsibility, not just to myself, but, you know, I don't want everyone around me to be like annoyed at my presence. So I need to sleep well again for my health and for my relationships with people. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think that's what people don't, you know, people are starting to realize that more and more. But when you start to talk about this being the biggest societal problem, you know, yes, climate change is important. And I'm a huge supporter, you know, and and we need there's a lot we need to do. And, you know, yes, there are all these other very pressing problems. But if we can't be decent people to each other, if we can't be understanding, if we can't be empathetic, if we don't have the capacity to be our best selves, how are we going to solve these problems? I just don't know. And if we're sleep deprived, it's going to take way longer uh, if we even get there. Um, And so, you know, there's just not a a measurable aspect about human functioning that is unaffected by, you know, your level of sleep deprivation and what's going on. So, um, you know, again, it's not the, it is not the cure-all. It's just, it's, it would be like, you know, you're building a house, like you need a foundation. Everyone needs a foundation. And for all of us, as if you are human, that foundation is healthy sleep. That's it. Like there is no no other way to go. Uh, you know, go about it. Now, even if you do that, doesn't mean you're going to have a great house. But to build a great house, you do need a foundation. There's just no way around it. So you know, I agree with you. We need a kitchen. You know, I agree with you. We need a garage. But like, we need to get the foundation in place. Yeah, it makes sense. So tell me about Rise. What's the premise of it? Of the app? Yeah. So you know, the premise really comes back to to something maybe very foundational in the world of sleep science, which is sort of where I got my start as a sleep scientist uh, almost 10 years ago. And not, you know, I'm not, a, my PhD is not in sleep science, but I, the, the sort of journey for me, as I mentioned, was what do I need to do so that I feel better? And I just had so many questions about that, that I ended up going to my school sleep science department and asking them if I could be an apprentice. And it was there that I learned a ton about the field, ultimately solved, you know, what it was and what the field knew about how to feel better and what to do with your sleep. And ended up publishing my first paper, uh, you know, many years ago, all on how do you take data from wearables that were just coming on the market? And how do you help people actually feel better? And so um, the, the big learning, and I'd argue, and this isn't my opinion, this isn't like written in, in, you know, some sort of paper somewhere, this is my opinion based on my understanding of the field, is that if you care about how you feel, there's two factors that matter. Now, th- this is not my opinion. This is documented, but there's something called the two-factor model of sleep and wake regulation. And I think what everyone knows about sleep is probably what I've already shared. It's super important. It affects your days. It affects how you feel. It affects your stress levels, your anxiety levels, how nice you are to other people. I think people might intuitively know that. They don't actually know that there's scientists that have dedicated their lives to studying each of those impacts, but there are. The thing that isn't known And I, so, you know, I think over the last 10 years, since I've been thinking about this, it's certainly become much more known that sleep is important. It's something that you should care about. It's not something you do when you're dead. What, what is not known is what do I need to do so that I feel better? Is it, do I need some new mattress? Do I need to have a wind down routine? Do I need to take melatonin supplements or some other supplement at night? 
Do I need to track my sleep with a fancy wearable? Like, what do I need to do? And there's, uh, if you go to the sleep science literature base, what you'll find is, is that there are basically two factors that together explain most of how you feel when it comes to sleep. And so that's called the two-factor model of sleep reg- regulation. And there are you mean, two... You mean like uh, when, you, when you wake up, you'll say, you know, like I'm sure there's some quiz upon waking, how did you sleep? So these two factors, the, the top two things that modulate your score in that quiz, for instance? Uh, it would be the score on that quiz. It would be if we were to measure your empathy levels, um, and there are tests to actually measure sort of empathic response in humans. So it would be predicting the score on your on that. It would be predicting your basically any measure that has to relate to your cognitive performance. So you know you know how sharp you are. Let's just call it. Let's simplify it to that. Your emotional performance, things like empathy, your mood state, and your physiological performance, immune system, metabolism, you know, the list goes on, skin health, uh, how fast you can run a 40 yard sprint, you know, the list goes on. There, there, there basically isn't, I guess the, the point that is maybe unique here is that there really isn't anything we do know of that is unaffected by these two factors, by your sleep. And that part, I think, is a little bit, um, maybe people haven't heard before, but the thing people really haven't heard before that they don't know is, well, how do I get those things? They think it's maybe quality of sleep or like, it's just not really known yet. And so in the scientific world, it is known about what drives those outcomes. And it'll drive those outcomes. You know, everyone has different sensitivities, but it'll be these two factors that will share that, that, yes, modulate the score, essentially, that you would get in any one of those areas. Yeah, I think people focus on length big time. You need eight hours of sleep a night. Or, you know, I know yeah. there's sleep efficiency, there's all this other stuff, but I would guess that most people just seem to focus on length of sleep and not other yeah. issues about it. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah. So yeah, people focus on length, people focus on quality, uh, people focus on sort of sleep, all sorts of things that people have come up with. And, you know, luckily for us, we don't actually actually have to guess there, you know, sleep science has been around for a hundred years. It started back in 1925 at the university of Chicago. Um, and it was the first sleep lab ever, uh, in the world to study human sleep. And so we know a heck of a lot about sleep. There are millions of peer reviewed papers, you know, with sleep as a keyword. So we know a heck of a lot about sleep. And so what, what have we learned? I think this is the most important finding that if you care about feeling better, there's two factors. So you've heard me say that now a couple of times. The first factor is related to how much sleep you get, but it's called sleep debt. The scientific term for this is called the sleep homeostat. And sleep debt is just really simply a measure of how sleep deprived you are. And the second factor is something called the circadian rhythm. The scientific term for this in the two-factor model is called the circadian process. And what this is, is really that you have a, a clock in your head 
that is controlling the times throughout the day, but when you'll feel groggy, when you'll feel really alert and, you know, uh, in flow, when you'll feel tired, when the best time to be sleeping is, when the best time to be waking up is, and that's known as the circadian rhythm. And so we can go sort of really deeply into each of those, but, but that, that's the, that's the game. So, you know, the question to ask is, you know, is what you're going to do going to affect either of those levers? If the answer is yes, the science would predict that you will function better in all the areas we've talked about. If the answer is no or small impact, then the science would predict that it won't have a very big impact, roughly speaking. So that can be a very useful tool just to think about, you know, again, we spend about 30% of our time sleeping. How do we invest that time smartly and wisely? So within your app, what are the the supporting factors for these two elements? What drives them? And what do you what do you uh, make people aware of in the app? Yeah, so so the app is all about those two factors, and what we try and do is we make them very easy for you to understand them, for you to use them on a daily basis. And you know, if you're interested, you should just go try the app. There, there's nothing like seeing your data and being able to use it. You can try it for free. It's on the App Store and Play Store, and you can search Rise, and it should come up. It's a purple R icon. So that's on the app side, and we can get more in, in, into detail there. But in terms of how sleep debt works, each of us has a genetic amount of sleep that we need. The average is actually, and why you've heard eight hours before is that's actually wrong. People don't need eight hours. Uh, They actually, just like eye color, just like height, the sleep need that you have is largely genetically determined and doesn't really change much once you hit, you know, adulthood. And so that need is fairly static. So my need is about eight hours and 20 minutes. And the average is actually slightly over eight. So about eight hours and 15 minutes with about a 35 minute standard deviation. So that means, you know, most of us need between, you know, 845, 745, roughly speaking, right? So um, now it doesn't mean- Because um, because I noticed like when I lay down, if I have nine hours total, I sleep better. So I'm probably in the eight minutes, I mean, eight hours and X number of minutes range, but no one has perfect sleep efficiency. And I've heard if you fall asleep instantly- For sure. Not getting enough. So if you bake in sleep efficiency on average, how long does someone need to like, from the moment they lay down and say, all right, I'm going to go to sleep to the moment they get out of the bed, how long do people need on average? Yeah. So I mean, on average, let's assume it's slightly over eight in terms of how much you need. Let's just call it eight hours and 10 minutes. You know, on average, if you're a healthy sleeper, typically it's taking 15 minutes on average to fall asleep. So add 15 minutes to that. So you're talking about eight and a half hours of, of investing in your sleep every night. You know, again, that's on okay, average. Good. That doesn't no, no, mean, no, you know, it doesn't mean you should get eight and a half. And I'm not suggesting that if you're getting seven and a half and feeling amazing, like that, that might not be right for you. I, I want to point out, like, again, it's just like height. There are people that you know that are six foot four and there are people, you know, that are five foot one. So, you know, in your life, you know that. So it's also stands to reason there are going to be people, you know, if you just play out the distribution, there are people that genetically are short sleepers. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That will get, a, you know, five to six hours a night and feel phenomenal. And that is their need. They cannot get more sleep. That's just how much they need. There are also people that need more, that need nine, that need nine and a half. And that's also, you know, within the realm of normal. There's nothing wrong with you if that's the case. Well, the reason I'm asking is, how about this for like a, you know, for listeners, maybe a quick, easy sleep hack. I don't know if you agree. However many hours you think you need, add 30 minutes onto it when you go to bed from now on. And that allows for you to fall asleep and a little bit of wiggle room. And maybe that will 
ensure that you sleep better. You know, like for instance, again, if everyone's got in their head eight hours, eight hours, and someone lays down and they're like, okay, I have exactly eight hours, they really don't. So maybe they're shorting themselves. So that's why the suggestion, what, what's your thoughts on it? I mean, I think it's a reasonable rule of thumb. You know, uh, the, the other thing to be, to be aware of here is that you cannot physiologically oversleep. Now you can get more sleep than you need if you have significant debt and feel groggy. That is 100% a thing that can happen. And a lot of people feel that way. And they actually will use that as a way to sort of justify needing less sleep. Well, Jeff, I, I normally get six during the week. And then on the weekends, I get 10 hours and I just feel horrible. Like I must need less sleep. And that's something called a sleep hangover and, and goes away pretty quickly. But um, yeah, it's, it, I think that's, I think what you're saying is a reasonable approach. I think the, what we, you know, this is why we built Rise is that it's very hard to be aware, one, of, of exactly how much sleep you need. So we have algorithms that predict that. Um, but there, you know, there's easy ways to tell. It's just sort of uh, it takes a lot of discipline to do. And then the other thing that we do is we have mathematical models that tell you how much sleep debt you have. So while, you know, it sounds simple, like, oh, if you, you know, let's say you need eight and you get seven tonight. So then tomorrow you'd have one hour of sleep debt roughly that's how it works, but not quite. It builds up over the last 14 days. Some research shows actually the last 30, our research points to more the last 14 being more important. Um, and days? then it's 14 wow, days. So, well, right there, if someone doesn't sleep enough during the week and thinks they can catch up in the weekend, they're fooling themselves, right? Oh yeah. I mean, just do the basic math, you know, right? If let's just say you're getting seven for the week. By the way, I just want to put seven in perspective, what that means for you cognitively. You know, I'm assuming most folks are you know, in a knowledge work type of role, you're, you, you know, you're, you want to feel good. You want to, you know, you want to look good. You want to be able to be the best version of yourself. So let's just assume you get seven hours during the week. What the research would show is after about seven days of getting seven hours, you're performing cognitively like the legal limit for alcohol after just one week of getting seven hours of sleep. And so, and, and, and let's then bring in the sleep debt concept. So let's say again, on average, you need eight, even though it's a little more than that, and you're getting seven. That means that basically at the end of the week, you've built up somewhere between seven to eight hours of sleep debt. So then let's say on the weekend, you get, you know, instead of eight hours, which is your need, you end up getting nine or 10. Even if you got 10, two nights, Friday night, Saturday night, you know, that's still paying back down two hours. So four hours total. So you still built up four hours of additional sleep debt during the week. So it is absolutely true that you can make it up. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to get the sleep that your body will let you get. It is overall good for you, but don't fool yourself in feeling like if you get one night of eight hours that it's going to make the difference, it won't. But that's sort of the, there's a double-edged sword with sleep debt. You know, on the one hand, what's amazing about it is, let's say you've got something really important, you know, some really important work meeting or some really important project you need to make progress on and you just have a terrible night of sleep. Most people psych themselves out and they're like, oh, now I'm going to feel bad. If, you've, if your sleep debt's low, you're actually going to be just fine. But the opposite's also true that if you've not been paying attention, you've been staying up really late, you've not you've been really, you know, not getting your sleep need for the last 2 weeks, getting one, two, you know, three nights isn't going to magically change overnight. So while you will actually get a benefit the next day, it just won't be as big as continuing to do that. And that's kind of in my opinion what's so exciting about sleep is, you know, most of us are nowhere near low sleep debt. And so then think about your own performance and how you feel and how you're functioning in your own health. And to think that you have this free lever that you can do tonight that will change how you feel 
more than anything else known to man, to me is pretty exciting. And we all have that. Oh, all, you know, billion, what, six six or seven billion of us on the planet have, have that ability. Now, some of us structurally don't. There are a lot of disadvantages. And that's, you know, something that we need to change and fix and work on. But, um, but, but we all, you know, inherently have that ability. What about the circadian rhythms? Well, actually, you know, before we get to that, I have one more question. This is about nap. Sure. Yeah. So I've been told, oh, 20 minute nap, 30 minute nap, don't go too long, blah, blah, blah. But again, when I lay down for a nap, I don't fall asleep instantly. Yep. As, have you or anyone calculated how long you actually need to lay down for a nap, incorporating how long it takes to sleep so you can actually nap for a useful amount of time? Yep. Yes. So actually one of a close advisor of mine, a guy named uh, Mark Rosekind, who um, used to lead Stanford Sleep to lead a, a research center at NASA called the Fatigue Countermeasures Group. One of the things they study that was one of the best fatigue countermeasures was napping. And a lot of the work around 20 minutes and full, na- full cycle naps and things like that came out, of, came out of that lab and came out of that work. And um, if you want to read a great book around napping, Sarah Mednick, who's a, I think she, or now she's, I believe at UCI Riverside, but was at Harvard, writes a great book on, on napping. And so I, if, if, if napping is a sort of tool in your, in your tool chest, I, I would recommend this book, but the, to kind of answer your question, yeah, when someone says 20 minute nap, what they mean is 20 minutes of actual sleep. Now there's an, one misconception, I think that is misunderstood around, around this, that being asleep, you know, there are various stages and I'm sure you've had people on the show to talk about the stages of sleep, but the first stage of sleep, stage one is very like you're sort of in between wake and sleep. And it's sort of the, the like sort of daydreaming feeling. And that's actually stage one sleep. So don't also feel a need that like you need to, don't put so much pressure on yourself that you need to like, you know, be in some deep sleep or do anything magical. You don't. And so just, you know, be in a cool, dark, quiet room, give yourself 30 minutes or 35 minutes. On average, it's going to take, you know, 15 minutes to fall asleep. It might be, it might be a lot less if you're sleep deprived and, you know, you go, you, you, you go from there. So the 20 minute nap, the benefit is that you, it has a huge learning benefit and cognitive benefit compared with caffeine. And it's only 20 minutes or 35 minutes. So that's pretty efficient. And the fact that it's on the shorter side also means that when you wake up, what's called sleep inertia, which is that grogginess that we all feel when we wake up from either a night of sleep or, or a nap is uh, typically less than, than if you took, you know, a much longer nap. And then the other, the other benefit of the 20 minute nap is that it sort of protects against one of the dangers of napping. And one of the dangers is if you end up nap, you know, you sleep for too long in your nap and too close to sleep that night, it can make going to bed that night really hard. And then you can kind of get into a vicious cycle where then you're going to bed really late and then you're waking up at a weird time and, and it, and it can be sort of a, a vicious cycle that way. So just something to be aware of, but I think that's why a 20 minute nap can be uh, pretty beneficial and, and has some nice guardrails built into to the fact that it's short. Okay. And then now on to circadian rhythms. Uh, tell me about that. If you're a lark or a night owl, what, what are the dynamics there? Yep. So I think we've all heard about, you know, yeah, lark or night owl before. Oh, I'm a morning person or, oh, I think I'm a night person. And I think, again, people feel like it's this kind of fuzzy um, pseudoscience concept. And it's not. There is a lot of biology and a lot of research around how the circadian rhythm works and how it functions and, you know, exactly how it works in, in response to certain stimuli and what morning person means and late person means. 
I think for where what I think is most useful to maybe start with is that um, you actually have a clock in your head. It's called the SCN or the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And um, one of the things that it does is sort of it's responsible for actually setting the sort of energy production cycle of all of your cells in your body and the time at which they make energy and the time which they don't. It's kind of wild to think about. But sort of as a result of this uh, control, and by the way, just going back to circadian, circa means around, dn means day. So it refers to the around a day patterns and rhythms of cognitive, emotional, physiological functioning that we all have. And so there's sort of a couple unique zones that I'd maybe point out. And one of the things we do in the Rise app is actually predict this for you. We map it out on a daily basis. We help you plan your day around it, um, which can just have huge wins for, for you know how you experience every day, which is exciting. But the way that it works is you actually have, from when you wake up for about 90 minutes, you have something called sleep inertia where you're groggy. You actually have a chemical buildup of something called adenosine. You're going to feel groggy. It's normal, natural. Uh, you can beat it with caffeine and getting outside and exercising. Um, next, you'll actually have a peak of energy in the morning. So you'll be really creative. You'll be really locked in. This is the time when you want to do your most important meetings. You'll then have a, 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 a dip in the early afternoon. And that dip um, is when you maybe want to go take a walk, maybe have lunch, maybe you know do things that aren't as uh, high capacity for, for you. And then you'll actually have, by the time you finish work, you know, around whenever that happens to be five or six, you'll actually have uh, a second peak. And this will be another huge peak of energy, of focus. Um, and so this is either A, maybe you've got some really important work projects you need to fit in there. Great. Get them done then. Don't wait and, and delay on them. Or it's also a great time. You've just dedicated, you know, a, a full work day to putting in a good day's work. Go and focus on what you need personally. Go and be present with your family. Be emotionally there and fully there with your kids, uh, with your, you know, partner, with uh, getting, taking care of your own personal things that you're working on. So that's the second peak. And then that ends. And really at that point, your body is trying to get you to wind down biologically. And so then you need to listen to that and wind down. And again, that's not this soft, fuzzy thing. Your body's actually going through a cascade of biological processes to get you to go to bed and be tired. One of those things, uh, and one of the main hormones is called melatonin, which we probably all know. We spend about a billion dollars a year on melatonin in the US. And what most people know is if they have issues falling asleep, for some reason, their doctor tells them to take melatonin. Um, there is no, there is, there is scientific evidence, you know, of the highest standard that shows that taking melatonin before bed has no effect compared to placebo. So I just want to caveat that if you are taking melatonin before bed and it is working for you, I am not advocating that you make a change. It's just not necessarily what a science. What is before bed? Is it right before I lay down or is it an hour before? Like what is It's before a great bed question. Mean? So it actually means something different for everyone. And we'll get into that. So what, what's happening is most people take the pill. What most people don't realize is that hormone is being produced naturally in your brain. And the way to know whether you are a morning person or a late person is actually based on the timing of when your brain naturally releases melatonin. And in the scientific community, it's called dim light melatonin onset. And the way that it's measured is we basically put you under dark lighting environment. So, you know, imagine you're camping. So maybe there's some moonlight and a campfire, but that's it. No light beyond that. 
at, if we uh, test your salivary melatonin levels, so give you literally spit in a tube, and then we go to the lab and we test, is there melatonin in here? We have you spit in a tube every 30 minutes, you know, for a couple hours, we'll actually see a spike of melatonin start to appear in your saliva. And that's your dim light melatonin onset. And so that's actually that time when your brain biologically releases melatonin can be different by up to eight hours between people. So that's another area of your sleep that again, is very different. And so, you know, when people talk about sleep hygiene and do this and that, and you need to sleep this much and you need to wake up and go to bed, it's like, no, 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 no. You need to understand from first principles, how your sleep biology works. And it comes down to your sleep debt, which is based on how much sleep you need. And you need to keep that low. And then the second thing is what is your circadian rhythm? And when is your melatonin window? And when is the time that you're going to have peaks of energy and dips of energy during the day? And that's how you need to design what before bed is and what, what, what isn't. Does that make sense? Yeah, so what, what happens if, uh, you know, do you have a protocol, like a melatonin timing optimization protocol or like a sleep timing optimization protocol in the app where you suggest someone to migrate, you know, after testing to a certain time period of sleep? So we do in the app predict when your melatonin is going to be released. And we call it the melatonin window. And that's the best time to be sort of going to bed um, within that window. It's when we think there's the highest chance that melatonin is being produced in your brain, assuming that you um, give, you know, you're in naturalistic environment. So cool, dark, quiet, you know, not cognitively intense, you know, think back to caveman days if possible, right? Like just imagine sort of removing caveman days, but without all the dangers of being in nature, Um, cool, dark, quiet, not doing stuff super stressful, not up late on Instagram, looking at a bunch of stuff not pounding into work email till the right, right up to the last minute. And so the, the rise app will actually help you set a very specific routine. That's going to help facilitate winding down and actually hitting your uh, melatonin window. And when you do, you'll find that you, you know, fall asleep, stay asleep, feel a lot better. Um, and, and at least now be empowered with the information to know, okay, I don't need eight hours every night. I don't even need to have higher low sleep debt but you surely should know how much sleep debt you have because like you said, it affects your empathy. It affects how short you are with the barista. It affects like literally every aspect of how you function. And so knowing how much is going to help you prioritize what you need to do that night. Do you want to stay like, you know, I love Netflix as much as the next person. And so which nights am I going to be able to prioritize versus not? Okay. I want to watch a 30 minute show versus an hour show. Yeah. I think you you may be answering a question I've had for a long time. Whenever I tell people this, it horrifies them. So I've been going to sleep at about four and getting up at noon for like 20 plus years. My dad's okay. getting worse, you know? Okay. For the most part, it's worked. I felt fine until probably the last couple of years. I feel like I need to go to sleep earlier. But here's my real question. So I hear all the time, oh, cortisol peaks at 9 a.m. and melatonin does this, this time, and blah, blah, blah. And so I ask all the sleep scientists, okay. Well, if I go to sleep at four and get up at noon, I do it consistently and I'm getting enough sleep. I feel what happens to my hormones? Do they change and they peak and trough at different times? Or am I just biologically fixed and I'm just out of sync for 20 plus years? Like, what do you know? Do you know the answer to this? Oh, yeah. The answer is absolutely it changes. Like, without question, it changes. Does it change enough that it that suits me or does it always lag or you know, now that I'm getting older, I'm like mid forties, it's going to move on me. And if I don't pay attention to my sleep, it's going to get shittier. 
So here's what we know about the circadian rhythm moving. And again, this stuff is well, and, and this is what's crazy is there's a lot of people that, you know, talk about sleep, but why haven't you been able to get a clear, that is a basic question that you're asking, right? That any competent sleep scientist should be able to give you a very clear answer to without hesitation and should be able to point you to the exact phase response curves of, I've asked over a hundred sleep people and usually they go, Oh my God, really? That's when you go to bed, but they don't answer my question. You know, they should be able to say, Hey Richard, uh, you know, yeah, let, let me understand your lighting schedule. Uh, and if I know your lighting schedule and your sleep schedule, I, I can basically tell you down to a science, I can predict how much, you know, all of these different, you know, hormonal, you know, patterns are going to change on a daily basis. Like we, I mean, we have it down to a fairly good science. It's not, this stuff is, you know, is it for the most part, well understood at a high level. So um, yes, it will change. And how do we know that? And if you don't believe me, one, one, we can just, I can share the papers, but two, think about how many people have, you know, if you've ever trans, you know, moved to time zones, you have changed your circadian rhythm and all of your biological processes. It didn't magically stay where you were when you were born. Right? So it changes your circadian rhythm changes in response to two exogenous factors, light and external melatonin. And so actually, you know, Richard, if you, you know, you're, that is a pretty late schedule relative to the population. You probably know that by the way, oh, yeah, it's a genetic, it's a genetic thing. It is not like oh. a socially induced thing. So it doesn't surprise me that you said that your dad also is late. And, you know, mo- what we actually find with, this is called, it's called chronotype, you know, how late your melatonin is being released. So it would not surprise me, Richard, if you're, if I did that melatonin test and you're under dark lighting, and if I took a saliva sample at nine o'clock, there'd be no melatonin to be found. If I took it at 11, there'd be no melatonin to be found. If I took it at midnight, there'd be no melatonin to be found. If I took it at 1am, there'd be no melatonin to be found. Only until around probably three or four is probably when your brain is naturally releasing it. Yeah. So then I think the question is, well, does that work for you or not? And it may or may not. You, you may, you know, the rest of the, unfortunately, the rest of the world, the average tends to be sort of around, you know, what things are set up now where, you know, it's sort of like nine to five workday. But that is not necessarily what is normal for everyone. And, you know, we actually had someone on our team who used to work with all the pro athletic teams that we've worked with, uh, in, you know, in the NFL and NBA. And he thought for his entire life that he was lazy, that there was something wrong with him, that, you know, there was just, he just needed to, to just work harder. You know, he was just lazy, but he was going to bed well, at yeah, 4 a.m. every night. Societally, and, yeah, it makes you feel bad. You know, the early bird gets the worm and all that. The whole, all of society is geared towards getting up early is good and getting up late, you're lazy in bed. Exactly. And that is fundamentally broken. What the new world, uh, what the world should be is we need to understand where everyone's circadian rhythm is. And we need to help people work on their own rhythm. And actually, one of the reasons I'm so excited about uh, not just what we're doing, but about, you know, where people are with working remotely is you have so much more flexibility now to be able to tune that and work on that and work in an environment that suits you to do your best work and live your best version of yourself. Um, And so, you know, then the question, Richard, is, okay, great. That being said, can you change to become earlier? Could you somehow magically change your your dim light melatonin onset instead of 3 a.m. to midnight? And, And do you want that, you know? And the answer there is, in part, yes. 
And the way to do it is to be incredibly disciplined about when you take melatonin. So this is actually when melatonin would come into the picture and uh, when you get light and when you don't get light. And so, you know, that's something that, you know, there are behavioral sleep medicine specialists that specialize in, you know, unfortunately, in my opinion, they, this is called a circadian rhythm disorder. I don't like to think about it that way. There are, if, if you're six foot five, is that a height disorder? No, you're just really tall. Do you have a disorder because your you, your dim light melatonin onset is biased way later than most people's? No, I don't think so. I just think it's biased later than most people's. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just different, you know, statistically. But there's not a disorder, in my opinion. So it, it's sort of concerning to me that, that, that it's called that. But that they would call this delayed sleep phase disorder. And, um, and the way to, to, to sort of move it forward, if you wanted to, would be, again, to be super methodical about when you get light, how much light you get, and then when you don't get light and controlling that. And then you could supplement that with taking melatonin at very specific times. That sort of probably goes beyond the scope of maybe what we want to talk about on the show, but that's yeah, the that sort of next path forward. I didn't mean to make it about me, but you, you were mentioning the, no, uh, yeah. the, football, the football player. What happened? You said he thought he was lazy his whole life. And what did you yeah, so he thought, he, was lazy. he thought he was lazy his whole life, and it turns out he got on rise. We said, no, you're a really late chronotype. Your melatonin window is at you know, 3 a.m., and if you want to shift it earlier, here's what you can do about it, and we're going to try and help you do that. But here's your peaks and dips of energy. There's nothing wrong with you. This is normal. And just that, that like, whoa, like I'm not, there's nothing, I'm not lazy. This is a biological thing about me. This is something that I can change that I have some ownership on in terms of, and and now I know what to do about it. You know, that can just be incredibly exciting to people. And, you know, just in terms of statistically, I think it's somewhere around a quarter of the population is on the late side of things. So this football player now, like the touchdown, you know, ratio, like went up 50% or something. Like what happened to him? So when if you went through your program? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of uh, the results, one is just psychologically knowing that you're okay. And that can be a huge thing for your identity. I think the second is then knowing when you are going to perform and when you won't perform. So for example, uh, Chicago Bulls were a client of ours. And we knew, though, so the other part about your circadian rhythm is that the latest you'll ever be is at age 20. Men on average are about an hour earlier than women. And as you get older and older, you get, you get earlier and earlier every, you know, every year. So I would imagine for you, Richard, that as you continue to age, it'll get earlier and earlier. Yeah, I feel, and it, so, it's, uh, it's, I feel it's too much now. I'm starting to scale it back a little bit because it's, it's too, too late now. It's hitting me so yeah, it should come early, right? It'll come early. It'll start to be earlier and earlier just naturally. But what, what you then can do about that is know when the best time for you to be sleeping is know what you need to do to wind down properly. Know when you wake up, when you're going to be at your best, when you're not going to be at your best. So to put that in perspective a little bit, the Chicago Bulls, you know, those, most of those guys are skewed young in their mid twenties. You know, there are some older veterans on the team. And they were having them after a bunch of sleep deprivation of travel, basically doing shoot around really early. And we were analyzing all the data and we said, no, 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 like these guys are late chronotypes. We need to actually push shooting later so they can, you know, go to bed when, when they normally do around one or two, but then get into the the shooting later when they're going to be at their peak. And they did that. And like, you know, performance was way higher and all the players were super excited about it. The coaches noticed better performance. But not only that, if you look at the last 40 years of Monday Night Football game data, 
some researchers from Stanford and Harvard wanted to understand, you know, what's the impact in a sort of competitive performance environment on the circadian peak? Like how big of an advantage is this? And so what they did was they looked at the last 40 years, probably now, yeah, I mean, they should redo the study now that we have more data, although it may be problematic because teams know about this now, but they took the last 40 years of Monday Night Football data. And if you know Monday Night Football, it's what, 5 p.m. Um, Pacific time is when Monday Night Football is. So if you're playing on the West Coast, the West Coast team is playing at 5 p.m. biological time. If you're an East Coast team playing a West Coast team, if you're an East Coast team that hasn't shifted and you just flew in, biologically, you start the game at eight o'clock, right? Say that it's three hours later, East Coast time. So that's fine the first quarter. But as the game progresses for most of these players, they're going to be in what's called biological night, where their brain is trying to downregulate and get them ready for sleep. Even though they're masked by the adrenaline and the rush and all of that, you know, they're basically in fight or flight response. But the their brain is trying to say, no, 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 like I'm expecting you to be in bed right now. I'm expecting you to be starting to wind down, getting ready for sleep. I'm trying to get you to shut down for the night. And so what they found is that when you look over the last 40 years, East Coast, or I'm sorry, West Coast beats East Coast 70% of the time accounting for the spread. So when you take into account, you know, what the betters thought the teams would play, the the West Coast still beats East 70% of the time. So pretty wow. crazy impact. You'd expect 50-50, you know, over that amount of years, that number of games. It should be a coin flip, and it's a huge advantage to being on the West Coast, and a huge advantage to being in your, not on the West Coast, being in a biologically advantageous time. And so the lesson for all of us, if you're not an NFL player, is that you should be performing, right? When is your, what is your, the equivalent of your game? Put that in your biologically advantageous times, and you will do a lot better than you otherwise would. Okay. So it sounds like you really delved into this more than others, but so to sort of, you know, wrap this up, you know, it's very simple. You got the two factors. We talked about sleep debt. We talked about circadian rhythm. So keep your sleep debt low when you can and try to perform in your biologically advantageous times in your peaks, go to bed in your dip and your, you know, nap in your dip and go to bed in your melatonin window. It's basically it. That's all you need to know. Everything else is like little tricks and tips to get you to do those things. But that's sort of the the first principles that you hear, you know, all this sleep hygiene stuff start to come out. Oh, take a hot shower, put on these orange glasses, do this, do that, wake up at this time, you know, all that. But if you just do, again, the two factor, keep your sleep debt low, perform in your your peaks, that will get you, you know, again, this is like just a way to think about it. It'll get you the vast majority of the benefit of that comes from sleep. Then you have to do all the hard work to figure out all the other areas. How do we dimensionalize this? Like, you know, what are some examples or anecdotes, you know, so we can get people excited about this? Like, you know, someone was really tired all the time and now they can crush beer cans against their head and they're doing amazing, you know, type of story. Oh, I mean, you don't even need a story. Just do it for a couple of days and see how you feel. And it will be life changing. No, people will, I'm sure, but I always am inspired by cool stories. So do you have any? Yeah, there's like, you know, I think, my view is finding the story in your own life is so powerful, you know, but I can give you a couple interesting, you know, statistics that I think are really, really powerful. You know, the the first I think we talked about. So again, you go from eight hours of sleep to seven for a week, you're at the cognitive limit, or you are you are at the cognitive equivalence of being at the legal limit for alcohol after just a week. 
So imagine you're getting seven hours right now and you're like, you know what, whatever that guy, Jeff was talking about on that podcast, that was sort of interesting. I'll give it a try see what happens for a week. If you do that, it will be going as it will be going from a cognitive state from where you were at the legal limit for alcohol to being sober. I mean, just imagine how big of an impact that's going to make on everything that you do in your day. Like if it was just that, that would be the most potent performance enhancing drug that we know of. If it was just that, but then let's look at emotionally. I don't know if you've read Matt Walker's book, uh, why we sleep, which is overall, I think a great book. And, and he does such a good job talking about a lot of these stories, talking about a lot of these important stats. And one, one of the studies that his lab carried out showed that if people built up about eight hours of sleep debt, so again, another week of getting seven hour, you know, seven hours instead of eight, 50% of people were having clinical levels of anxiety. Wow. So if you're someone who's feeling anxious, maybe you're feeling a little bit depressed, maybe you're feeling like you're just not feeling the same energy you used to when you were younger, just something's feeling off in your life, start focusing on your sleep. Like get that right first. It is the foundation. And that's just emotionally, but like not even just anxiety and depression, like sleep, the amount of sleep you get affects how much stress you have in your life. It affects emotionally how much, literally how much empathy you have. If you go from, you know, basically you build up eight hours of sleep debt, your empathy goes down by 30%. So I mean, like there's just nothing that is unaffected by this. And then let's look at physiology. I think, you know, immune uh, response has been all the rage for the last, you know, uh, it's been top of mind, I think for everyone on the planet, uh, you know, the last year. And so when you think about immune response, what's the biggest impact on your immune response? It's not the food you eat. It's not that you ate some antioxidants. It's actually how much sleep debt do you have? So researchers from Carnegie Mellon basically took, took different groups that had a group of people get different amount of sleep. And then they took the common cold virus and they put it up to their nose. So they had a group getting eight, they had a group getting seven, a group getting six. And then, and then at the end of the week, they would take the common cold virus, put it in their nose, they'd have them sniff it. And then they measured what percent of those people that sniffed the cold virus got the cold and what percent of them didn't get the cold. And what they found is that if you got seven hours of sleep versus eight, you were 300% more likely to catch the common cold virus. That's crazy. If you look at the flu vaccine and the flu efficacy, the how effective the vaccine will be, meaning how, how well it will protect you against the flu, is a hugely dependent on how much sleep debt you have when you get the vaccine. Basically, if you have low, if you have low sleep debt, so you've been sleeping well and you get the vaccine, your immune system is able to actually respond at full force and you'll get much better immunity against the flu as compared to if you come in and you're really sleep deprived. So, you know, what, here's what we don't know. What we don't know is exactly how this works with respect to COVID as, you know, a virus. But what we do know overwhelmingly is that the biggest impact to your immune system on a general level is how much sleep you're getting. And so, you know, my advice would be, again, even there, take it seriously. And if it was just, if sleep was just for that, just for your immune system, that would give you a couple of days back on your life you know, of not being sick every year and it would be, you know, super powerful. What's a day worth to you of not being sick. So, you know, then we could look at metabolism, which, uh, you know, also another physiological response. Everyone's trying to eat healthy and, you know, you're, you're buying organic food and you're, you know, trying to cook and eat, have a healthy lifestyle and keto diet. All that's great, but let's look at sleep again. What happens if you build up a bunch of sleep debt? So the university of Chicago ran this study back in 1999 and really foundational for the world of, of, of sleep and metabolism. Now it's actually its, a, its own subfield. But they had you know, 25-year-old healthy men 
get, uh, I believe five hours of sleep a night for four or five nights. Don't quote me on the exact dynamic. It might've been four hours of sleep a night for four nights. I, I forget the exact, uh, uh, exact run. Um, but roughly in that range, but building up a significant amount of sleep debt, but not unlike, not uncommon. Then they, they measured their glucose metabolism, basically how well their bodies are able to metabolize sugar. What they found is their glucose metabolism had decreased by 30%, which is the similar sort of put that in perspective. That is the difference between someone who has a healthy glucose metabolism and someone who has type two diabetes. So again, you go from, you you just look at like anything in the cognitive realm, creativity, focus, uh, cognitive vigilance, alertness, like name anything. And you go from with good sleep, good performance with high sleep debt, clinically degraded performance. And that is true cognitively. It's true emotionally and it's true physiologically. So Mark, who I talked about earlier, uh, who's been a great mentor to me, but I actually had him on a podcast interview for a while ago. And he said, Jeff, he's like, I don't think people get it. He said, sleep is like oxygen. If I were to choke you, every aspect about how you function would decrease everything. And you go into fight or flight mode and your body would start freaking out. He said, sleep is the exact same way. You build up, you get less sleep than you need. You are choking your body. It is like you are depriving yourself of oxygen. So that's the way to think about this. So, I mean, it's just crazy. It's so crazy that this is, you know, and and oftentimes it's like the simplest things we need to be reminded of day in, day out. This is one of those things. This is one of those things that like is so simple, but so fundamental. You need to just be, be very vigilant about continuing to remind yourself of just how critical this is for, for, you know, leading a successful life. So that's, I don't know if that does it on the story side, but. Uh, hopefully yeah, no, that's, that's inspiring. Great. That's great. Well, very good, Jeff. So people can go to the app store. Is it for Android and iOS? Uh, yeah, Android and iOS. Right yeah, Android and iOS. You can type in Rise Sleep and you'll see it. Um, and you can also visit us online at risescience.com. And, and everything that I've talked about here, we've tried to, to, and we're investing more in sharing this knowledge for free. So if you go to our website, we have a tab called Sleep Guide, where we sort of take you through all of these things. We have a whole guide on on sort of uh, the research behind different sleep hygiene practices and things that you can test out and the science behind it. But if you want to kind of go deeper, that would be a place to go and uh, is free and just recommend that you, you know, share this knowledge with other people because it's so important to all of us living and working well together. Uh, Getting our sleep right is really at the foundation of what it means to be human. And uh, it's just time that we change that. You know, we know enough we're, we're, I think as a society, we're tuned in enough to our own health and our own functioning that, you know, now's the time. So uh, if we can be of any help or support, we are here. Um, you can start a free trial of the app, uh, obviously. And if you like it, uh, converting in the trial would be a big support to what we're doing and would appreciate the business. So uh, we, we, we're, we're here and we're also here for your feedback. Uh, and we, it's truly a gift. So, um, you know, thanks for having me on. All right, Jeff. Very good. Thank you for coming. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.